You are listening to the Testudo Times Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Testudo Times Podcast. Another Wednesday and another week of Maryland football, Maryland men's basketball, uh, some Maryland football still in season. And we got a lot to talk about on this podcast. Uh, Dylan Spilko alongside Lauren Rosh and Sam Ostry. So let's get right to it with the currently more successful program, which I would defer to Maryland football to. They went 6-6 six and six in the regular season. Uh, they won in the regular season finale over Rutgers. And Maryland has finally been picked to play in the Pinstripe Bowl, which will be played at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. They will be facing 6-6 six and six Virginia Tech, who also won the regular season finale to become bowl game eligible. So we finally got the announcement. Uh, we've been waiting since the Rutgers game, obviously, to find out where Maryland is officially going to be playing their bowl game. Uh, what are our initial thoughts about this matchup against Virginia Tech? Uh, this game will be played right around New Year's, right around uh, December 29th. So what do we think about this? Just initial thoughts right away. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, originally, I think it's a good matchup. It's, it's Two programs are kind of in similar spots. I mean, Virginia Tech has had a lot more success in recent years. Than Maryland, I mean, they, they're really a perennial bowl team, a team that goes to the bowl game most of the time. Um, so I think it's going to be a good matchup. They've also had a tumultuous season. I mean, they had some coaching moves in the middle of the season. You don't know how that's going to impact players. I think it's going to be a somewhat even matchup. I don't know if the line has came out already. But I expect Virginia Tech to be favored slightly, and I think they will be. But this is could very well be, I mean, Virginia Tech isn't too far from New York, but it's probably going to be a home game type atmosphere for Maryland. They're going to have a ton of fans, a ton of people in the New York region, alumni, students from Maryland who are going to be on break, people who are in Maryland. It's an easy drive up just a few hours away. So, I mean, I think I think it's going to be a somewhat of a home game for Maryland, and it's an even matchup, and it, sh- it should be a good one. Um, I don't disagree. I think that um, the pinstripe location-wise is definitely great for Maryland fans. We heard um, Coach Loxley say it a few times, and the athletic director said a few times as well that um, Maryland has a big footprint in the New York, New Jersey, I guess, Connecticut area, tri-state area. So it's definitely really should be easy for Maryland fans who are based down here to get to, but also the fans who are up in a little bit further to get to as well. So I think that it's really is a perfect scenario for Maryland in terms of in this rebuilding you know, process that they've been going through um, under Coach Loxley to kind of get to this bowl game, but not only get to a bowl game, but get to one that geographically is really great for them. I think in terms of the matchup, I agree, playing Virginia Tech seems like a pretty relatively even-ish matchup in terms of just kind of not necessarily coming into the game with one pre- with a preconceived notion of exactly what's going to happen. I think that it could be pretty close and pretty exciting. So I think that anyone who travels, it should be a pretty good game to get to. Yeah, Sam, to what you said, I think, I don't know if it'll be like a Maryland home game, but we know how ingrained the, just the University of Maryland is in like the tri-state area with students. So, I mean, it's definitely an easy trip for a lot of those students. And I think that Maryland should have a pretty good crowd there. And it, and it should be a good look for this program. First time in a bowl game since 2016, should have a decent crowd there. So Yankee Stadium, Maryland, Virginia Tech, they'll be going at it. And obviously, December 29th, New York City, it's going to be freezing cold. It's going to be perfect winter weather for a, a great football game. And it might force, you know, if there might be – who knows? There might be snow on the ground or something. So there could be external factors really determining 
Yeah, yeah, it could be a snowball. You never know when it's going to be a snowball at Yankee Stadium, and Maryland might just have one on December 29th. So going to have to look out for the cold. But in the two games where Maryland really played in the cold this year was on the road at Illinois and on the road at Michigan State, two very frigid areas. I think they played at Illinois in still in September. So it's, you know, they only played a, few, a handful of games on the road in the cold, but both of those games ended in low-scoring losses. Maryland scored just 20 against Illinois and 21 against Michigan State. Does the cold weather, just the prospect of it, worry? Or will it do anything to affect Maryland in a bad way that you've seen this season? Well, I mean, maybe just because Talia doesn't have a ton of experience playing in the cold. I mean, that Illinois matchup, that was in September. I think it was, it was probably still summer at that point, technically. Um, so I don't think it was that cold. But one time it was pretty cold was here in Maryland, actually, when Michigan came. I'm pretty sure it was Michigan, yeah. And Talia was actually asked about, like, have you ever played in something as as cold as it's expected to be? And he said, probably not. I forget exactly what he said, but he wasn't really worried about it. Um that I forget the exact temperature. It's probably not going to be as cold as it's going to be in New York. But, you know, he doesn't have a lot of experience playing in the cold. You know, in high school and then his couple of years in college and in Alabama, he probably played maybe a cold game there, but it's not, not, not as cold. Not, not as cold in Alabama. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I'm saying yeah, yeah. maybe not Alabama, just somewhere on the road. But definitely not as cold as it's going to be in New York. So, I mean, that's going to take some getting used to. So, I think it certainly could have an impact on him. And, and his receivers, too, who probably don't have a lot of experience playing in the cold either. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. And as the game goes on, you'll get more used to it. There's tactics that the quarter, all these quarterbacks use, all these football players use to try to avoid, avoid getting cold, even if you're wearing very minimal amount of, like, protection there. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, and I think when he was – when Talia was asked that question earlier, he did mention that he had some experience just not in Alabama but playing other teams, you know, when he was at Alabama and being in the cold – didn't have the same kind of role there as he does here. So definitely agree. We'll take some adjustments, but by the looks of it, it seems like Maryland will be in the New York area for a while. So even if they're not playing in the cold, they'll have a pretty strong idea of, you know, what that temperature is really going to feel like and standing outside for a prolonged period of time um, outside in that weather is going to be like, but it doesn't necessarily worry. I think that especially because they're preparing for it. I mean, it's not, it's not so warm, you know, down here in Maryland today. I mean, it's not the same as what it's going to be when they're playing up there. But I think just like it's being a little bit colder, Maryland not being too far off um, weather-wise in terms of New York, definitely a few degrees colder up there. But, you know, they're continuing. seems like they're going to continue to practice outside and be exposed, I guess, to slowly cooler temperatures down here. Yes, well said. I think it's going to be uh, pretty cold in New York at that time. So we will see just how important the weather is going to be on December 29th. And then a little other Maryland football news, not much going on besides the bowl game announcement. Chigas McConquo, senior tight end, one of our fan favorites. Uh, he declared for the 2022 NFL draft. He ended the year with five touchdowns, 433 yards in 2021. Maryland missed a lot of that in 2020 when he didn't play due to medical reasons. Are you guys surprised at all that he entered his name into the 2022 NFL draft and where do you, does, does he have a significant shot of being drafted? And just what are some things that, you know, we like about his game overall and where does he stand after this announcement? And he did say that he will be playing in the, uh, the pinstripe bowl. So that's also an important thing. So that'll be his last game as a Terp, but then he'll look forward to the 2022 NFL draft. 
Yeah, so that's great that Talia and that offense will have him for the pinstripe bowl. I, I wouldn't say I was surprised because he is a senior. Obviously, with COVID, he did have an extra year of eligibility. But, like, now's the time to go. He had a very good year after last year. He didn't play. And there was, there was a lot of expectation going in for him this year because he is a very – he's one of the best tight ends in the Big Ten. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of expectation for him coming into the season. And maybe he struggled in the beginning. He was really only a red zone threat. But then as injuries happened to the wide receiver in core – he, he became more of a, a target that Talia was looking for on a regular basis. And he had a good year. So now is really the time to put your hat in when you have that film to show as a senior. I, I don't know if he's going to get drafted. I don't know if it's going to be late rounds. That really depends on his combine and everything that his pro senior pro day and everything that happens in the, these next few months leading up to April. But he certainly is, he's not like the biggest guy, but he's strong. He's athletic. He's willing to block. Um, and, you know, he's by all means, he's a good character, good attitude, good teammate, which, you know, that helps with GMs. That's what they're looking for, for those late round guys and undrafted free agents if he ends up in that position. So, I mean, he'll, he'll land on his feet somewhere. And I don't know if he'll have a long NFL career. I don't know if he'll have a, any NFL career, but he, he has the intangibles to get drafted late and maybe maybe make a little career for himself in the NFL. Yeah, and you talk about how he's willing to block. I think like toward the beginning of this season, he was talking about how that was something he used to maybe not like doing so much and just in the offseason kind of the growing, you know, the growing culture that Loxley is building and the buy-in from all the players. It's He's somebody who's definitely bought into the program. And, you know, you see that with his energy like you were touching upon. But he had mentioned that now blocking is something not only that he, you know, has gotten better at, but he enjoys doing. So for him to have that shift in mindset definitely um, speaks to kind of the transition he had as a player and also um, not necessarily surprising being that he's a senior and he had this kind of performance. I think that he's developed a lot as a player over the season. And I think that, you know, I'm excited to see what he can do maybe in the pinstripe bowl and, you know, being able to have that game and that really knowing it's your one last game at Maryland and kind of seeing how, what kind of note he goes out on, especially because of the um, chemistry that him and Talia have built over, you know, the, uh, specifically really the last few weeks with some of those top receivers out. But I think that, you know, he has, I think he has a shot at having some sort of, you know, getting drafted or, you know, being on a roster come later this year or later next year. But ultimately I think that as Sam said, like those intangibles are there and there's a shot. Yeah, there's definitely a shot. I think if you just look at his traje- trajectory towards where he is now, I mean, he started as a consensus three-star. He appeared in four starts as a freshman at Maryland, and then he got 200 yards in his sophomore year. And then obviously in 2020, he had to set out, sit out due to, to medical reasons. But, it, it, you know, that he could have done a lot in that. You, know, you don't know how much he could have done for his stock in that junior year. So that really hurt him. But he, he really made it up for a, with a really good senior season. You know, he didn't really start out too hot. He did have two touchdowns in the first three games of the season. But then he's really turned it up, as you said, after the wide receivers went down especially in the last four games in the game against Penn state, 12 catches the game after eight and five and four, 85 yards, 112 yards, 36, 23, and two touchdowns in the final four games. He's really shown what he can do. And I think that if you just look at some of his touchdown plays, I mean, they were pretty impressive. He's a very agile tight end. He had a lot of set screens for him this year in, in which he was able to break free a couple times. And you could really see that chemistry evolve with Tilia Tugavailoa throughout the year. But how much can he really improve his stock in the pinstripe bowl? Because obviously nationally televised, 
a bigger game compared to what he's done throughout this season is there is there a way for him to improve his stock before the year or is he kind of already set in stone with like how people think of him how much more can he just raise his personal you know I mean no NFL GM I mean they're smarter than evaluating one game so no NFL GM or scout or whatever is looking at one game sample size and saying this is the guy this isn't the guy you know if he it's it's a national stage and you know it's just more film that he can show um, NFL team. So if he has a good game and a productive game from that standpoint, I'm sure there's going to be, it's not a bunch, but there's going to be scouts at the game. So if he can perform at a high level, it'll only help him. Um, and I think, I think it honestly has more to do with, he wants to finish out his career, his Maryland career with the pinstripe bowl. I mean, and like with his team, you know, he doesn't want to quit on his team early. He's that type of guy. And a lot of people do that where they you know they don't want to risk injury. They, they don't see a point in practicing with the team as they're getting ready for the NFL draft. It's pretty rare that you see guys guys do that now, play out these bowls who are going to enter the draft, especially in those early early round, the guys who are projected in the early rounds. But, you know, it's it's an opportunity for him to finish out his career with, with, his, with his guys and hopefully get a win for them. And I guess now I think that'll do it for football. We went over the pinstripe bowl. Maryland will be playing that on December 29th. And Chiggas and McConco declares for the 2022 NFL draft. So besides that, there really wasn't much else with football. So I think that means we can move on to the, the program that is going through a major shift right now. And that is Maryland men's basketball. Maryland is going through just a ridiculous amount of change since last week. And it all started with the loss to Virginia Tech. Well, it started with a few other losses prior to that, but it was really capped off by that Virginia Tech loss. So, I mean, the weeks, the last week, the, the, the drama really began with James Graham transferring. And then the big one, Mark Turgeon and the program part ways. So we haven't had a chance to talk about that yet on this podcast. So I guess, I guess now is a good time to touch on it. Just what, what are some words on Mark Turgeon's tenure? And just what did you take away from how he departed from the program? Well, it's really complicated. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I'm glad we didn't do this an emergency podcast on Friday because I feel like a lot of emotion was going around. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things were being said early and we didn't have all the details. Um, like the reality is, I mean, everyone knows at this point he he didn't think that he had a future here at Maryland when he they, this team was struggling as as much as they were. He felt like he had lost the voice in the locker room. I don't think the team was responding well to his voice anymore. He was struggling to get guys to buy in. And that happens when you have six of your top nine players are transfers and completely new to the program. You're going to struggle to get guys to buy in. So he's looking at this season and he's going, I don't really have a future here beyond this season because he was likely to be fired. Even though he got a contract extension, it was a team friendly buyout. I mean, it was a school friendly buyout deal where they were going to fire him in the next couple of years if he didn't perform at a high level one year. And with all the expectation that they had coming to the year that was created from the outside, but also he created because he said that he thought this team could go could go on a deep NSA tournament run. And he was hyping up a lot of these players in the preseason and they weren't living anywhere up to close to expectation. They weren't even a tournament team by that after that Virginia Tech loss. So when, when you have all those factors and it's like, I'm probably going to get fired after this year. I'm like, I'm, I'm worn out. He looked, he seemed exhausted. And then you have the fans just heckling him. I mean, we, we were all there on Wednesday night. It was, he was getting fire Turgeon chants were in the air. He was getting booed. He was getting heckled as he walked off the court for the last time. So all those things, it's like, 
and we know the stuff about his family too. It's, it's difficult on them when he's getting heckled. So it's like, why, why would he want to continue to put up with that for this another season? And just, it's really a distraction, not just for him and his family, but also for the team when he's the center point and everyone wants him fired. So why would he want to continue to put up with that when he can just, you know, walk away really because he was going to get fired after the season anyway? Yeah, I think that you hit on a really big point which is kind of the strain that it puts on his family. I mean, we haven't spoken to his family, so we can't necessarily attest to that, but based on social media, which of course doesn't always paint a full picture, I think you see the way that people talk to Turgeon that way and talk to his son, who's, I think his son, Will, who plays basketball at the college level and, you know, is a little bit more of, has a presence on social media, definitely hasn't been quiet these last few days in the sense where after the Virginia Tech game, there was a fan who tweeted something, which has now been deleted, but essentially inciting that, you know, he's always wanted Turgeon to be fired or it was right after whatever the case may be. And, you know, Will had responded to it on Twitter. And it's clear that the response in the response, he said, you know, he loves everyone who's in the program and like, please treat everyone there better than you supported, like my family better than you supported me. and. I think the real, the actual term he said was like, please support them better than you supported my family. And I think that that says a lot to kind of probably the toll that that takes on a person. And if what you're saying is what the trajectory was going to be, Sam, which I believe uh, seemed to be the case based on the negotiations with the contract last season and the potential of him, you know, this really kind of being it, I can't imagine kind of the strain and stress that that puts on your family to kind of get those kinds of comments. And, you know, under that same post that I was just talking about, um, he was writing about somebody asked like um, what ring they must've won. If Will had alluded to a ring that they'd won that year based on the fans post and he posts the picture and he writes like, you know, the one that you probably forgot about or the one you must've forgotten about. And I think that that's really telling because I think that the thing about Turgeon is no matter what he was going to do, it was really hard for him to, he came into the program, you know, following Gary Williams, who is this, mon, like this monstrous positive presence in the Maryland sports world. I mean, you have him coming in, Lefty Drizel comes in really short after, uh, really shortly after Len Bias passes away and the program is going through all this development and change and is dealing with the consequences and they have their, the period where they're not able to participate in things and do this and that and whatever it is and the school is facing consequences and then Gary Williams comes in and you know changes the trajectory of the program and wins a national championship and does that and literally takes a program from the ashes and completely transforms it into this great thing I mean it didn't happen overnight but it happened and I think the last few years of Gary Williams definitely he faced not, nothing, I don't believe, as what Turgeon was facing. But, you know, the team dropped out a little bit, like dropped out of the tournament, dropped out of whatever it was. And I think in the eyes of the fans, he will never be that coach. He's always going to be the national championship coach. He'll never be the coach that coached these teams that maybe weren't doing as well. But the, to then hire Turgeon to fill those shoes, I think, is challenging. And I think that that kind of plays into the fan perception of it all and maybe, you know, Turgeon uh, leading a team to qualify for the NCAA tournament and being able to do that was always kind of looked at as like, well, it's like 
fans wanted more. And that, I don't think that that's a secret. I think that that was very vocal on their part. So I can't imagine the toll that that takes on yourself and your family and those you're closest to. Yeah, I mean, you got, it's hard for people to understand that with all the hate going on Turgeon, game in, game out, all even in the Virginia Tech game when he was getting booed out, it's it's pretty obvious. It obviously has an impact on the family as well. And they see him getting heckled and they hear him getting booed. And they, you know, they're just as connected to the program as Mark Turgeon is, basically. I mean, it goes hand in hand. Are you going to say Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I think that when Danny Manning addressed the media for the first time after that game, he was talking about how, you know, Turgeon wanted to win and he wanted to do all this. And he like that he wanted to, you know, do bring the program to the heights that he was hoping to bring it to, but that he stepped away, you know, because he's a good person and all that, but he kind of stepped away due to just kind of, you know, everything that was going on and he felt it was better for the program, but also for him and his family. And for me, something that really stood out from that first time that we spoke to players and coaches was when Eric Ayala was kind of addressing the media and he was talking about how he knows that Turgeon went through a lot with everything going on with the fan base and that he wanted to put his family first. So, I mean, again, we weren't in that conversation, but you have to think that that was part of the conversation that he was having with the team when he told them that he was leaving. And, you know, Ayala talked about how he really admires him for that and kind of putting his family first. And, you know, Danny Manning talking about how, you know, you hear maybe he's your family goes through a lot in this job. He, Danny Manning was a head coach. He knows your family goes through a lot in this job and how it's tough, but he made the decision that was best for him and his family, but also the team. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, it does kind of give it a little bit more of a bigger picture sense where it's like, okay, it's not just like they lost three games in one season in, in a, or two games at that point consecutively in a season that they should have hopefully uh, should have won in their eyes. And you know, that's kind of it. It's very much bigger picture. And I think we really were able to fully understand that after Northwestern kind of hearing, having those, com- those um, hearing what some of those conversations may have been like. Yeah. And I mean, like we should talk about the fans because the fans are really what drove them out. Like that, that it doesn't happen if that's not such a hostile atmosphere after they lose on uh, Wednesday night, like it's probably, he's probably still coaching right now. And it's just the fans are really what drove him out at the end of the day. It might've been a bunch of things leading up to that, but at that immediate moment, it was the pressures that really is created by the fans and the criticism because the fan base overwhelmingly, I mean, overwhelmingly did not like him as a head coach. That doesn't mean not as a man. And that means as a, as a head basketball coach and they wanted him out. And like, it's, it's, you're never, ever justified to say nasty things to people, especially anyone's family is 100% off limits. But in terms of most most level-headed Maryland fans, <laughs> most level-headed Maryland fans who wanted him out the door, those people, like, they were pretty justified in, in not being happy with his tenure. I mean, yeah, you, you said it, Lauren. Like, he followed a legend, which is incredibly hard in Gary Williams. And he was dealt a very hard hand in terms of he went from the ACC to the Big Ten. Like, that's been what well, he had nothing to do with that move. You know, that he just he was in the middle of his coaching of coaching a team and he had to deal with that. And that's difficult to do. And then COVID, like he that would maybe was his best team ever. And they like they got their can the tournament got canceled because of COVID. 
So it, it's a number of things that maybe he got a little unlucky, but at the end of the day, he was here for 10 years and they went to one Sweet 16 and they have one Big Ten regular season title to show for it. And yeah, you're talking about those rings. They, they shared that with two other teams in the Big Ten. You know, how much of an – like, yeah, it's an accomplishment, but, like, they're not the sole Big Ten champions that year. So he, he did not perform and live up to expectations. And that doesn't mean he's a bad coach. But, you know, it, it, the time ran out here because he wasn't – and after this season, which maybe he could have rebounded everything if they somehow went on a great run, it didn't look like that was going to happen early on in this season. So his time ran out. And, and fans are never justified to yell – horrible like nasty things and families 100 off limits but booing isn't the worst thing in the world and you know like their their resentment maybe not resentment is the right word but the, you know their their dissatisfaction for his performance like it's it was it was justified in my opinion so after a decade of mark turgeon and a 226 and 116 overall record maryland will be moving on to danny manning who's moved in as the interim head coach but at the end of the day, the funny thing is that no matter what happens the rest of the way, this season is always going to be connected to Mark Turgeon and not Danny Manning. Even though Danny Manning is stepping in as the interim head coach, if Maryland overperforms from here on out, it's going to be that Turgeon didn't do enough with the roster while he was with the team. And if they, and if they end up not making the NCAA tournament, which was completely unforeseen at the beginning of the year, then it's just, you know, well, because Maryland fans are crazy. Like, it's a crazy, yeah, right. no one can win group of fans. And that passion sometimes turns into vitriol. And, you know, it can turn into a lot of hate. But, like, it's a passionate group. So they're going to link, they're going to be mad at Mark Turgeon for the next six years. Even yeah. this next coach could come in and be horrible. And they'll still be mad at Mark Turgeon because that's <laughs> just how Maryland fans are. Right. And, lo and logically, it's hard to be mad about Danny Manning in any capacity unless they go on some crazy losing streak. It's understandable if they lose to, to Florida in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. But if they lose games to like Brown and Loyola, which I don't expect at all, I mean, then you could start putting the blame on Danny Manning. But if Maryland, you know, splits their conference play and ends with a so-so record and is sort of on the bubble, it's, it's hard to have any kind of hatred towards Danny Manning. And I think for him, that's a great thing. I mean, he's, I think, in a really good spot. He just got signed and, as an uh, assistant coach, and he's already worked his way up to interim head coach. And while Maryland is going to look towards other options at the end of uh, the season, I think he's in a pretty good spot considering where he started and the team that he's taking over. It's not like the team lost any of its talent. It's just obviously not playing up to the level at all that they should be playing to. So, yeah, I mean – yeah. Let's get one thing straight. Like, this is unprecedented. Like, it just doesn't yeah. happen when a coach just in the middle of the season just resigns and says, I'm out. Not like, just any I'm coach. The, the coach of a preseason top 25 AP overall team and a guy that's been there for a decade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't – exactly. And it doesn't happen. So, like, this is an unprecedented situation they're in. But, like, if there's anyone – Danny Manning doesn't have a great head coaching record, but he has head coaching experience. And if there is anyone to lead – and he's a college basketball basketball legend in and of itself. And so if there's anyone to lead them through this, I mean, he's probably, like, the right guy to do it. And, you know, he's an even-keeled guy. Like, so if there's anyone, like, when the, play, if the players need support, they need help as they go through this, I mean, like, he's probably the person to do it. So it's good that he's there. You know, they're lucky that he's there. But it puts – him and the entire staff in a difficult position because the reality is not a single person on that bench is probably going to be there next season. And it's really difficult to be coach 
and maybe try to recruit the probably stop recruiting at this point, but just to try to recruit and do all of that to, to just sell someone on this, on this program right now, because none of those people on the bench are going to be there. Not Matt Brady, probably not Bruce, um, like Greg Manning Jr. Who knows, but he just got promoted to his assistant coach. Like who, who knows, but like, and it's difficult for Danny Manning, but to your point, Dylan, if Danny Manning can somehow completely turn this thing around, he's going to be seriously considered as a head coaching candidate. I think that's very unlikely, and I don't think they're really going to consider him. Um, but, you know, if he can com- somehow turn this thing around and they make a run in the tournament, yeah, he will be considered. It'll be a great job by him, but he will be considered in the as a coaching candidate. Yeah, a, a run in the tournament is a good way to put it. I think <laughs> we got to get to they got to get to the tournament first, obviously. Yeah. And they got Maryland's got a long road to it, where they stand right now at five and four. They're on a three game losing streak. They've lost to Louisville, Virginia Tech, and most recently Northwestern. And three of Maryland's five and four on the season. Three of those losses have come come in College Park, and Xfinity Center has just not been the same with the fan base. It's been fairly empty, I'd say, and it's become a, a home disadvantage almost the way that the Maryland fan base has been booing their coaching staff. But that cha- there wasn't any booing. There were actually cheers when Danny Manning came onto the court against Northwestern, and we had finally the first chance to, to see him speak publicly as the interim head coach of Maryland, and we got to see him coach his first game. Obviously, Maryland lost 67-61 to against Northwestern in their first Big Ten game of 2021. What are some quick impressions of Danny Manning's first public appearance and his first game as the head coach? Yeah, so, I mean, I think he handled that. Like, he's, it's good that he had a few days. You know, I'm sure he was emotional, too, because, as he said, it was complete and utter shock for him. But he handled that press conference with grace and humility and exactly, like, that was just a textbook way to handle a difficult situation that he did. Um, so, I mean, there was that, and he had some time to, to think about what he wanted to say. And so, I mean, like in terms of the game, you know, you don't see, you're not going to see changes in that shorter period of time. If you're going to see changes to this offense and maybe the rotations, it's really going to come maybe this weekend's Florida. And then on when they play Florida on Sunday, and then after that, they have over two week breaks. So that's when that's really going to come. But Marcus Dockery got, got minutes, you know, Turgeon really, for whatever reason, did not want to give him any time. And he started, he got, he got a decent rotation in the beginning. And then Ian Martinez went down for the, he was out for the rest of the game. So um, Marcus Dockery played even more. And so that's something Danny Manning that was said part of his plan. And we'll see if there's other guys and where he switches up the rotation, the offensive flow. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know how many changes are going to come midseason with, with this roster that's really struggling. I agree with what you were saying about how um, just textbook, he kind of handled everything in the press conference. And I think like, it might get washed away in all the news and all the turnover, but you know, he came to Maryland for Turgeon. I, he's one of his close friends and they played together and he came to learn from him. And I can't imagine that was an easy conversation for either of them to have. And, you know, I don't think he, you know, he wasn't expecting to come in and be an interim head coach. And even if that means he's kind of like moving quickly through here, like, I don't think it was what he was expecting. And I think, the way he, you know, he shared um, just really authentic um, human emotions and was talking about how it was like a whirlwind tornado. He used whirlwind tornado of emotion, something like that. And he was just really authentic. And 
I think, you know, I wasn't expecting him to be any other way, but, you know, it was a really strong way of handling such a turnover like that. And in terms of like the actual game, in terms of the actual game, I think that, you know, I wasn't so expecting Maryland to walk away with that win before the game. And I think I may have said that to one or one or both of you beforehand, but I do think that, you know, it's clear that Danny Manning kind of picked up where Turgeon left off in terms of saying, you know, they feel like they're really close. All the pieces are there. I think we know based on watching this team over the last few months, like it seems like the pieces are there. There's just something that's not clicking. And like whether that's on the court chemistry or whatever it is, ability, I mean, it doesn't seem like it should be based on just how these players have performed in the past, but you know, maybe in the next few weeks, and it might take a little bit longer, they have that break, maybe in the next, you know, month or so, um, we'll start to see a shift in kind of cohesiveness and how they're playing. And, you know, Maryland's stronger players or the people who are supposed to be the stronger players actually being the strongest players and, you know, kind of watching all that. But that is a tall task for Danny Manning. It's a tall task for any coach. It was a tall task for Turgeon. It's a tall task for Danny Manning, who, you know, didn't even necessarily work super closely with all the players before earlier, or I guess at the end of last week, because, you know, he he had talked about that, that he only knows some of the players really, or he had only known some players' parents a little bit better than others, because, you know, he's not the one who went out and recruited them. So for him to kind of like have the phone call like he talked about with all of the parents and just kind of really want to hear about everyone's child and really kind of understand exactly what, you know, what kind of makes them them, what's going on in their life. And him acknowledging this like turbulent time for the program also coming, they're college students. They're not just players, they're college students. This is a very busy time for college students. And I think the way that his, it seems like his leadership style is that he really does care about them and just want the best for them. And he does love them. And he made that clear multiple times. So I think that part is definitely there. And so it's just kind of seeing now where they can kind of bounce back after Northwestern, how that looks. And there's only so much that a change of coaching staff can do in the middle of a season where expectations are already high and the team is underperforming. It's, I, I wrote a piece the other day on Maryland's top performers or who are supposed to be Maryland's top performers and how they just simply haven't been playing well enough. And I think in Northwestern, I re- there was a point – I mean, Maryland had – it was a back-and-forth game. I think Northwestern had the majority of the time leading, but Maryland was always within that game. It really wasn't broken open until the final six, five minutes or so. So I think we have to just look at the top players and kind of see how they've done because at the end of the day, it's their, it's their performance on the court that determines the result. So Fats Russell, Eric Ayala, really been struggling in the last two games. Three for 19 in the game against Virginia Tech and five for 24 combined against Northwestern from the floor. Both of these players have been struggling. They are both experienced leaders. They're supposed to be. The, the, Ayala is the scorer, the scorer point guard. Fats Russell is the playmaker. They both have been struggling just all over the floor, especially shooting. Just the efficiency hasn't been there. Out of those two players with Danny Manning now stepping in, the detergent era is all over. So who knows what's going to happen. But is there a world in which you see Fats Russell or Eric Ayala receiving less time on the court because of how inefficient they've been on offense? It's tough to imagine. But at the end of the day, 
five for 24 in your first Big Ten game and then three for 19 in the Big Ten ACC Challenge combined is just not enough from your two top guards. No, not, there's no one to replace them. Like, like, really. and, and, and they deserve to be playing. Something I completely overlooked heading into the season, I guess a lot of people did because a lot of people had the expectation I did for this team, was just the adjustment period that it really takes. And, and a summer playing like, together is not going to do it. And I think like, just when you have as many new guys, I said earlier, six of the nine guys are brand new to the program. You have a bunch of transfers coming in, including to the starting lineup. Just the adjustment period for all these guys is difficult. Because and I just completely overlooked that. Even if they have like they know each other, they've known each other for years, they played basketball with each other for years, a lot of these guys, way before college, the chemistry isn't gonna like just click like that on the, on the college level. But the real adjustment period is is for their best players, like you were talking about, Eric Ayala and Dante Scott. Both those guys had never have never been the go-to number one options like they need to be and like they're expected of to be this season. Both those guys were playing with um, Daryl Morcel, Aaron Wiggins the last few years. They could be a second fiddle, and then when they're when it's their night, when they're capable of going off, they can. And that's what we had seen from them the last few years. And so that adjustment period for them is something they're struggling with, I think, because they have to be the guy night in and night out for this team to win games. And you know, even with their poor offense, how it's really been like horrible. I mean, they can't, and you can boil it down to simple as they're not take they are not making shots, but they're also not taking great shots. I mean, they were seven for thirty six from two-point range last game. Like, how does that even happen from inside the arc? Like, that, that's just incredibly bad. But they're still in. They've been in every game they play. They've not getting blown out. You don't see this team quit once. There's a few defensive lapses at the end of games where, you know, like, they need to lock in and, and they give up some points. They're not getting those crucial stops. But, like, this this team, you know, they're, they're not, like, they're, they're just not they're, – they're not adjusting well in the sense that they need to. And the other adjustment period is coming for – Fats Russell. Fats Russell is incredibly quick. He has ins- amazing speed, but this style of play is not his style of play. They're constantly trying to slow the game down, make it into the half-court offense, and feed their big, which is usually Q down there, and sometimes Julian. That's not how Fats Russell's played basketball his entire career. He's a fast guy, wants to push the ball, get out and transition. So they need to play to those strengths. I think Eric Ayala, Hakeem Hart, Dante Scott, all those guys are capable of playing really fast. That's what Fats the point guard obviously wants to do. He wants to play fast and get up and down the court. When you're slowing it down, that's not happening. And that's why I think Fats is struggling too, because he's, they're in these slow sets and he sometimes has to force shots in these half-court sets that, that really are mounting to nothing. And, you know, like, yeah, like Danny Manning said, like, he was like, you guys don't know me too well, but I love paint touches. So I don't think that's changing at all because he's the guy working with the bigs. In with He's been working with Julian. He's been working with Q. So, but that's just not adhering to Fat's style of play. And it's not, the, it's not the style this team should really be playing with. Yeah, and I think you touched upon it, how they've been shooting really not well and out of character in terms of what the program has, is normally, you know, the numbers the program is normally putting up, but how they've been, you know, they've been staying in it and whatever. And I think that speaks volumes to kind of this so close piece that we keep hearing, like, you know, it's it's a testament to that the talent and the pieces are there but there's something that's not connecting and like they're just not connecting on all cylinders yet and like you know against Northwestern I think they had semi of a chance to kind of like towards definitely earlier in the I would say like about I think it was four minutes is when the game like kind of shifted and like Northwestern opened it up but they had a chance there to kind of 
um, come back, but we saw against Virginia Tech, they had the opportunity later in the game to, or like the seconds remaining in the game to kind of get that shot and win. And so I think when you look at, there isn't that kind of go-to player who you can be like, you know, XYZ is going to get the ball on the, when there's this amount of time on the clock and they're going to make it in this game's going to overtime, or we're going to close it to within two with this amount of time and not having that because nobody's really used to it is I completely agree. It's part of this adjustment period and it'll be interesting to see. They have a little bit of a break before they really go into big 10 play. They have some of these other games kind of how they can use them to their advantage and, you know, for their sake, kind of pick up a few wins and, not only wins, but along the way kind of build and start shooting better and start kind of executing some of the things they want to do better. You know, Danny Manning talks about how he likes to, part of the reason he likes those paint touches is he likes strong fouls and, you know, sending them and getting into the bonus early. It'll be interesting to see if they're able to do that against these next few opponents. It's an interesting kind of testing period for the program as a whole, obviously, but also kind of seeing what this, it'll be an interesting indicator of what the rest of the season can be. Yeah, and when and when they say like they're close, I mean, I like I. It's hard to imagine they're not close just because they have the talent on this roster. Like that's why this team was as, had the expectation coming into this year because the talent is there. It's the style of play, it's the system, and it's the consistent performances that haven't been there this year. And so, like, yeah, they should be close, but who know who knows if they really are because we just haven't seen it. We haven't seen any of those things click. So, I mean, may, maybe they're close, maybe they're not. I mean, only time will tell, but. It's, it's been a difficult start. This team has ways to go to m- even have a chance to make the NCAA tournament, which is just an absurd statement. Would have been an absurd statement three weeks ago. So Fats and uh, Eric Ayala both struggled against Northwestern. And then the forwards as well and the center, Kudus Wahab, they also struggled against Northwestern. Northwestern did a great job of shutting down both players. Wahab ended one for five for seven points. He played 27 minutes, and Julian Reese had just four points on one for six shooting. Is there a chance that we see them both on the floor in the future? Because we know that Danny Manning, big man in college, he's got to favor them. You got to fig. You got to just figure that he's gonna at least put it into heavy consideration to put them both on the floor at the same time eventually, because nothing else has worked. Like, yeah, pro- probably because you want to see a lineup switch and Turgeon kept saying they're getting closer. He's getting more comfortable, but he's not there yet. Maybe in these next few weeks when they have a, only one game in the next like three or four weeks, they're, they can get more comfortable doing that. But like it's Q, Q's really been struggling. And if he's if he's getting double teamed, I don't even see like a point of him being on the floor. Honestly, I really don't because and maybe that's a strong statement to you. Wow. But if he's getting double teamed, he's, he struggles to pass out of double team. He's, he can't score at a consistent level. And it really, like I was saying earlier, it hampers Fats Russell. And it, it like it, it, this entire offense, the pace of play is so incredibly slow. So if he's getting double teamed it re, and this offense isn't, is, it can't be what it is, then it's, it's going to be a problem. And we saw against Louisville. Like he wasn't getting double teamed, and he was really dominant. Those are the nights you want him. You want him on the floor when it's he's in single coverage, and he gets it on the block, and he can really go to work. Sometimes he misses those bunnies, but he's usually, he usually has a nice touch, and he, he can finish them pretty well. So those are the nights when you you want him going to work. But if he's getting double teamed, it really like that offense is a mess when they throw the double, and they usually get nothing out of that. So I don't really see a point of him being on the floor. And Julian Reese is someone who can step out. He he's become a very great rim protector. I mean, he gets a ton of blocks a game. 
comes over, good help defense, and he can step out and shoot that, shoot the ball. And honestly, he may be the only guy sticking around after the year. So I'd love to see more Julian Reese on the floor. And it all goes back to Maryland shooting struggles because if Wahab is getting double teamed every single time that he touches the ball inside the paint, which has been the case over the last few games, when Maryland's kicking the ball out, they're not knocking down any open shots. It's making the game plan against Maryland so easy to defend. It's If the ball goes inside, you're double teaming Wahab and you're trying to force a turnover, you're going to force Maryland to hit a wide open three. And that just hasn't been the case for Maryland's recipe for success. And it just becomes so easy for opponents to just outwork Maryland just through a game plan because just the meshing of the centers and the team's guards, it's just everything is just not working right now. And I think it's all come down to Danny Manning entering as the interim head coach and everything has just led to where Maryland is at now. And I don't think anybody ever envisioned a season like this so far. But is after this Northwestern loss, a Northwestern team that, give them credit, they, I mean, they did, they did play well. They did execute late. But Mar- that's a team, obviously, Maryland came into the season expecting to beat. Are there any teams that Maryland can beat in the Big Ten besides maybe Nebraska? Or Minnesota, <laughs> or you know, there's there's not a big. That's not going to be a big list of conference wins this year. Minnesota was supposed to have one of the worst rosters in all of college basketball, and somehow they're off to this amazing start. So I don't know if Minnesota is a given. There's going to be no given wins in the Big Ten. I mean, Northwestern, they're they're a pretty good squad, but they were supposed to finish towards the bottom of of the conference, and they, they probably still will, as will Maryland. Um, Nebraska, yeah, you would expect it. You know, they play them twice. I think they'll probably split. Um, but even though they kind of got their season going last year, made a big push with two wins against Nebraska. There's going to be no, like, the Big Ten is already such a difficult conference. There's going to be no easy wins. But I also know they're going to they're going to upset a few teams they're not supposed to beat because they're going to come out with some great shooting nights that's uncharacteristic of them. So it's going to be really difficult, and that's why this, the making of the tournament is going to be so challenging. Even if they can start clicking, they're going to face some really tough teams in the Big Ten, and it's going to be, it's going to be difficult to get those marquee wins that you're going to need when, when the selection committee is thinking about who they're putting in the tournament. All right. We're going to go to one last question. The question that is not going to be obviously found out for a while, but does this Maryland team, the way you are looking at them now, the way they are playing, is there a world in which they bounce back and everything starts going well and they slip their way into the NCAA tournament? Because right now I'm leaning towards now. I, I just don't think they can do it. I, I mean, everything that we've seen so far is that if it's a poor shooting night, something's going to go wrong. And with this roster, there are, it was a roster that we came into the beginning of the season. And we thought, wow, there are not many holes in this starting five. And now looking at it now, there are so many holes on this roster and there's so many things going wrong at the same time where it's hard for me to envision success right now for this team in months like February and March where the Big Ten schedule gets extremely rigorous. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, they're not even, like, close to the first four out of the tournament right now, but there's, like, so much time left, and they can't, like, well, the thing I keep saying is they can't shoot the ball as poorly as they have been. Like, it seems, like, almost impossible, and I think Dante Scott and Eric Ayala, like I said, they're, they're very good players and, and high-level scorers, and I think they're going to start to get it going. So, like, but it's just, they're just going to have such a different, difficult schedule, and they, like, I kind of expected them to go undefeated in non-conference play, to be honest. And obviously, the, that's not been close to what's happened. So, um, you know, it's, it's – I don't – like, 
I would lean towards no, they're not going to make the NCAA tournament right now. It's tough to call. There's a possibility they somehow sneak in as like a 10 seed maybe with an at-large bid, but I would lean towards no. It's just, it's, there's no reason to believe with everything that's going on this season, they're somehow going to flip a switch and, and turn it around. Yeah, I was going to say, unless, unless we see that in the next, consistently the next two, three, four games, I don't necessarily see it happening, but I think that when you look at, when you talk about how they can't be shooting this, like this is kind of it, it's almost hard not to look at maybe these last, let's call it a week. It hasn't even been a week, but let's last two weeks, I guess, maybe this is rock bottom of the season. I mean, once you hit a certain point, got to bounce back up from the bottom at some point, and maybe this is the point in which they kind of like kick off the ground and maybe it's not, but I don't think that it'll necessarily earn them a spot in the tournament, but I do think there's still a lot of potential for this team to at least turn things around for themselves and kind of have a season where they're playing a lot stronger, a lot stronger than they are now, really up to the potential that um, the potential and the expectations that have been on them since the beginning. All right, so a lot going on with Maryland men's basketball. Maryland football is heading to a bowl game, the Pinstripe Bowl, and Maryland's Maryland men's basketball. Can we give a prediction for Florida's game? Oh, I haven't, I haven't even thought about that. Lauren's begging for us not to do it. But I guess I could throw one out. I mean, Florida, Florida's been they, – uh, they just lost last game, right? They got upset. That's the Southern, 0-17. Uh, right, right. They just got upset. So let's go. Um Ooh, probably going to be another low-scoring fest. Am I wrong? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? So I'm going to go with 65 to 58 Florida. I actually, I don't know why, but I think Maryland's going to win the game. I mean, Florida Florida was not supposed to be highly touted coming into the season. They got off to a good start. They had one of the worst losses I've ever seen this entire season to Texas Southern, who was 0-7 last week. I think they're going to falter. I mean, they were – Top 25 team, but I, I, I don't know. I think Maryland's going to win the game. Barclays Center will be there if that counts for something. <laughs> new new who, like new floor. Maybe they'll shoot the ball better. I don't know. Just new atmosphere. New floor. I think they're going to win 62 to 58. Um, I'm not giving a specific score. Yeah. That's not happening. But I can give, I think, I'll agree with you, Sam. I'll say that maybe something changes. There's been more time for everything that's happened to settle in a little bit. Um, yeah, Florida got off to a pretty solid start, but agree, pretty bad loss. I think Maryland wins by seven points. Last, last time me and uh, Lauren both predicted a Maryland team to win and don't predict them to lose was Maryland at Rutgers football. Oh. Yeah. So, so viewers, keep that in mind, uh, <laughs> that I'm incorrect most of the time. So – I think so. We we got in our predictions. Great job, everyone, and that'll do it for this Testudo Times podcast. And we will be back next Wednesday, going over the Maryland and Florida game. And I think that'll be just about it for the content. So maybe I have to fill in with some other Maryland sports. But for now, that will be it. And we thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week.